Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. My name is Geordie Gregg. I'm the literary editor of the Sunday Times. It's my pleasure and privilege to welcome you and to introduce introduce Ted Hughes, the Poet Laureate. Ted Hughes is one of the bare handful of important poets to have come out of the time since the Second World War who are important poets. As we approach the millennium, he is one of the few voices today we can almost be certain will still be heard in the centuries to come. To consider Ted Hughes is to consider a force of nature, both because the natural world is his most favourite subject and because of the energy of his imagination, which can minutely inspect something as humble as a fly and turn it into something magical, as a freshly barbered sultan royally armoured in dusky rainbow metals. Ted Hughes has been such a force in poetry worldwide that the Sunday Times is delighted to announce today that we have awarded him the 1996 Literary Award for Excellence. Ted Hughes is a distinctive voice with his search for the truth of the nature of things through thought, sight, sound, and of course, his uncanny ability to make language compulsively unforgettable. Without Ted Hughes, so many other poets, so many other modern poets today would not be where they are, having learnt so much from him. He is a mesmerizing force for poetry today, and it is a great privilege for us all to have him here. Ted Hughes. Thank you. Great honour to receive this um, acknowledgement from the Sunday Times. I'm very pleased indeed. I'm going to read for um, maybe 35 minutes, and I'm going to um, go in the opposite direction to usual. I'm going to start at the end and read forwards. <clears throat> I'll start with the latest and read back through time. So. I'll begin by reading a little translation I made from uh, the Latin of Ovid. And this is one of the stories uh, that Shakespeare used as a basis for his long poem, Venus and Adonis. Uh, It's it's the story of Salmachus and Hermaphroditus, or how the hermaphrodite became a hermaphrodite. Bits of it are quite close to the Latin, bits not. Among those demigods, those perfect girls who sport about the bright source and live in it, the beauty of Salmachis, the water nymph, was perfect. As among damselflies, the damselflies. As among vipers, the elegance of a viper, or a swan's grace among swans. She was bending to gather lilies for a garland when she spied Hermaphroditus. At that first glimpse, she knew she had to have him. She felt she trod on prickles until she could touch him. She held back only a moment, checked her girdle, the swing of her hem, her cleavage, let her lust flood hot and startled into her cheek, eyes, lips, made her whole face open as a flower that offers itself, wet with nectar. Then she spoke. Do you mind if I say you are beautiful? Seen from where I stand, you could be a god. Are you a god? If you are human, what a lucky sister. As for the mother who held you and pushed her nipple between your lips, I am already sick with envy of her. I dare not think of a naked wife in your bed. If she exists, I dare not think of her bliss. Let me beg a taste. One little sip of her huge happiness, a secret between us. But if you are unmarried, here I am. Let us lie down and make our own bridal bed, 
where we can love each other to sleep and awaken each other. The boy blushed. He had no idea what she was talking about. Her heart lurched again when she saw how his blush bewildered his beauty, like the red side of an apple against a sunset, or the ominous dusky flush that goes over the cold moon when the eclipse grips its edge and begins to swallow it inch by inch in spite of all the drums and pans and gongs beaten on earth beneath to protect it. Then the nymph slid her arms around his neck and asked for a kiss. One kiss, one brotherly kiss. Get away, he cried. Let me go, or I'm off, and you can sit here on your basket of tricks all by yourself. That scared Salmachis. She thought he really might go. Oh, no, forgive me, she sobbed. Forgive me. I couldn't help it. I'm going. Oh, I'm spoiling this lovely place for you. I'm going. I'm going. So, lingering her glances, she goes. And truly, she seems to have gone. In fact, she has ducked behind a bush. There she kneels, motionless, head lifted, her eye fixed like the eye of a leopard. He plays, careless as a child, roams about happily, thinking he's alone. He paddles into the pool's edge, goes deeper, the cool pulse of the spring, warping the clarity, massages his knees, delicious. He peels off his tunic, and the air makes free with all that had been hidden, freshens his nudity. Under the leaves, Salmachis groaned softly and began to tremble as the sun catches a twisting mirror surface with a splinter of glare, her own gaze flamed and hurt her. She was already up and leaping towards him. She had grabbed him with all her strength, yet still she crouched where she was, shaking all over, letting this go through her like a dreadful cramp. She watched him slap his pale shoulders, hugging himself, and slap his belly to prepare it for the plunge, then plunge forward. And suddenly he was swimming, a head bobbing, Chins surging through the build of a bow wave, shoulders liquefied, legs as if at home in the frog's grotto, within a heave of luster limpid as air, like a man of ivory glossed in glass, or a lily in a bulb of crystal. I've won, shrieked Salmachis. He's mine, she could not help herself. He's mine, she laughed, and nobody in particular and with a couple of bounds she hit the pool stark naked in a rocking crash and thump of water, the slips of her raiment settling wherever they happened to fall. Then out of the upheaval her arms reached and wind round him, and slippery as the roots of big lilies but far stronger, her legs below wind round him. He flounders and goes under, all his strength fighting to get back up through a cloud of bubbles leaves him helpless to her burrowing kisses. Burning for air, he can do nothing as her hands hunt over him and as her body knots itself every way around him like a sinewy otter hunting some kind of fish that flees hither and thither inside him. <clears throat> and as she flings and locks her coils around him like a snake around the neck and legs and wings of an eagle that is trying to fly off with it, and like ivy, which first binds the branches in its meshes, then pulls the whole tree down. And as the octopus, a tangle of constrictors, nippled with suckers, that drag towards a maw, embraces its prey. But still Hermaphroditus kicks to be free, and will not surrender or yield her the least kindness of the pleasure she longs for, and rages for, and pleads for, as she crushes her breasts and face against him and clings to him as with every inch of her surface. It's no good struggling, she hisses. You can strain, wrestle, squirm, but cannot ever get away from me now. The gods are listening to me. The gods have agreed. We never, never shall be separated, you and me. The gods heard her frenzy and smiled. And there in the dizzy boil, the two bodies melted into a single body, seamless as the water. 
that. I'll read you um, one about um, This was just a moment <clears throat> when my brother, who's about 10 years older than I am, um, was back home, and we were both watching our father, who was then about 83 or 84, walk across a, a cobbled yard. <clears throat> and it was um, winter, and um, he was sort of finding his way over these rough cobbles, obviously finding the whole walk rather precarious. <clears throat> and he used to be um, a great physical culturist. He was a professional footballer for a while and a, a wrestler and a weightlifter and so on. And so <clears throat> it was odd for us both to be watching him through the window, this old frail man finding his way across the yard. And the great um, figure that he was for us was a survivor of the First World War. He was in the Lancashire Fusiliers, and um, he was in the first of the fifth. And he used to say that he was, he was one of three of his battalion that survived the Gallipoli. <clears throat> and then at the, by the end of the war, of course, um, they'd been thinned even further. And so we were reckoning that he must be about the last one alive. Anyway, it was just this moment of looking at him through the window, picking his way across this wintry cobbly yard, <coughs> Just an odd moment. The father capers across the yard cobbles. Look like a bird, a water bird, an ibis going over pebbles. We laughed like warships fluttering bunting. Heavy duty design, deep seated in ocean water. The warships flutter bunting. A fiesta day for the warships where war is only an idea, as drowning is only an idea in the folding of a wave, in the morning funeral procession, the broadening wake that follows a ship under power. War is an idea in the muzzled caliber of the big guns, in the gray wolvish outline. War is a kind of careless health, like the heartbeat in the easy bodies of sailors, feeling the big engines idling between emergencies. It is what has left the father, who has become a bird. Once he held war in his strong pint mug full of tea and drank at it, heavily sugared. It was all for him, under the parapet, under the periscope, the lookout, under Akibaba and the 50 billion flies. Now he has become a long-billed, spider-kneed bird, bow-backed, finding his footing over the frosty cobbles, a wader picking curiosities from the shallows. His sons don't know why they laughed, watching him through the window. Remembering it, remembering their laughter, they only want to weep, as after the huge wars, senseless huge wars, huge senseless weeping. And then just to keep the balance, <clears throat> this is um, one about my, going on in this autobiographical way, but this is one about my mother and my brother. As I say, he was a lot older than me. And <clears throat> the, I think everything's explained in the poem, um, but I guess what isn't played explained is when she was a girl, when she was in her late teens she was one of a family of about eight or nine and the closest to her in age was a, a sister Miriam just a year apart and the sister died when they were in their late teens and very soon after that this sister reappeared at night and sat on my mother's bed <clears throat> just held her hand and a day or two later their little brother died and after that, through my mother's life, this sister would reappear 
a day or two before any member of the family died and would sit on her bed and then would gradually stand by her bed. And over the years, we used to hear of these incidents through our, as we were growing up. Until finally, the last, the last one that appeared, <clears throat> and she was changing, this sister was changing the whole time and turning into an angel, as my mother said. And so when she finally appeared, she was about eight or nine feet high and completely made of flame, feathers like a great um, angel in Blake. Maybe that's where my mother got the idea, or the angels got the idea, maybe. And this, these feathers were, <clears throat> were flame. They were feathers, and yet they were flame. And um, so my mother described how she put her hand out and touched these stroke to these feathers and how she said they tasted like honey. They felt like the taste of honey, was how she described it. Anyway, then, of course, my mother eventually died herself. <clears throat> so this is just about her. My mother, in her feathers of flame, grows taller. Every May 13th, I see her with her sister, Miriam. I lift the torn-off diary page where my brother jotted Ma died today, and there they are. She is now as tall as Miriam. In the perpetual Sunday morning of everlasting, they are strolling together, listening to the larks ringing in their orbits. The work of the cosmos, creation and destruction of matter and of antimatter, pulses and flares, shudders and fades, like the northern lights in their feathers. My mother is telling Miriam about her life, which was mine. Her voice comes, piping down a deep gorge of woodland echoes. This is the waterline, dark on my dress, look, where I dragged him from the reservoir. And that is the horse on which I galloped through the brick wall and out over the heather, simply to bring him a new pen. This is the pen I laid on the altar. And these are the mass marriages of him and his brother, where I was not once a guest. Then suddenly she is scattering the red coals with her fingers to find where I had fallen for the third time. She laughs helplessly till she weeps. Miriam, who died at 18, is Madonna-like with pure wonder to hear of all she missed. Now my mother shows her the rosary prayers of an ending worry like pairs of shoes, or one dress after another. This is the sort of thing, she is saying, I like to wear best. And much of it, you know, was simply sitting at the window, watching the horizons. Truly wonderful it was, day after day, knowing they were somewhere. It still is. Look. And they pause on the brink of the starry dew. They are looking at me. My mother, darker with her life, her red Indian hair, her skin so strangely olive and otherworldly. Miriam, now sheer flame beside her. Their feathers throb softly, iridescent. My mother's face is glistening as if she held it into the skyline wind looking towards me. I do this for her. She is using me to tune finer, her weeping love for my brother through mine, as if I were the shadow cast by his approach. As when I came a mile over fields and walls towards her and found her weeping for him, able for all that distance to think me him. <clears throat> this is about a... These are just about, um, well, I'll just read them. And the chapter's in a sort of story of a kind. <clears throat> See what you make of them. Um, this one's called The Earthenware Head. Who modeled your head of terracotta? Some American student friend, life-size, the lips half-pursed, raw-edged with crusty tooling, a naturalistic attempt at a likeness that just failed. You did not like it. I did not like it. Unease magnetized it for a perverse right. What 
possessed us to take it with us in your red bucket bag. November fendamp haze, the river unfurling dark walls, ferrying slender willow yellows. The pollard willows wore comfortless antlers, switch horns leafless. Just past where the field broadens and the path strays up to the right to lose the river and puzzle for Granchester, a chosen willow leaned towards the water. Above head height, the socket of a healed bowl wound, a twiggy crotch, nearly an owl's porch, made a mythic shrine for your double. I fitted it upright, firm, and the willow tree was a herm with your head watching east through those two stabbed pupils. We left it to live the world's life and weather forever. You ransacked Thesaurus in your poem about it, veiling its mirror, rhyming yourself into safety from its orphaned fate. But it would not leave you. Weeks later, we could not seem to hit on the tree. We did not look too hard, just in passing. Already you did not want to fear, if it had gone, what witchcraft might ponder it. You never said much more about it. What happened? Maybe nothing happened. Perhaps it is still there, representing you to the sunrise, and happy in its cold pastoral, lips pursed slightly, as if my touch had only just left it. Or did boys find it and shatter it? Or did the tree, too, kneel finally? Surely the river got it. Surely the river is its chapel and keeps it. Surely your deathless head, fired in a furnace, face to face at last, kisses the father, muddered at the bottom of the cam, beyond recognition or rescue, all our fears washed from it and perfect under the stained, mournful flow, saluted only in summer, briefly by the slender, punt-loads of shadows flitting towards their honey and the stopped clock. Evil, that is what you call the head, evil. This is just the story of a electroconvulsive shock treatment going wrong. <clears throat> Your temples, where the hair crowded in, were the tender place. Once, to check, I dropped a file across the electrodes of a 12-volt battery. It exploded like a grenade. Somebody wired you up. Somebody pushed the lever. They crashed the thunderbolt into your skull. In their bleached coats, with blenched faces, they hovered again to see how you were in your straps, whether your teeth were still whole. The hand on the calibrated lever, again feeling nothing except feeling nothing, pushed to feel some squirm of sensation. Terror was the cloud of you waiting for these lightnings. I saw an oak limb sheared at a bang. You, your daddy's leg. How many seizures did you suffer this god to grab you by the roots of the hair? The reports escaped back into clouds. What went up vaporized, where lightning rods wept copper, and the nerve threw off its skin like a burning child scampering out of the bomb flash. They dropped you, a rigid bent bit of wire, across the Boston city grid. The lights in the Senate House dipped as your voice dived inwards, right through the bolt hole basement. Came up, years later, overexposed like an X-ray. Brain map still dark patched with the scorched earth scars of your retreat. And your words, faces reversed from the light, holding in their entrails. Another one. I know what 
what it felt like in those uh, transatlantic big galleons, you know, hoping, <laughs> hoping that the crew in the crow's nest could hear something. <laughs> I remember going out there, the tide far out, the north shore ice wind cutting me back to the quick of the blood, that outer edge nostalgia, the good feeling, my sole memory of my black overcoat, padding the wet sand spit. I was staring at the sea, I suppose, trying to feel thoroughly alone, simply myself with sharp edges, me and the sea, one big tabula rasa, as if my returning footprints out of that scrim of gleam, that horizon-wide white, might be a whole new start. My shoe sole shapes the only sign. My minimal but satisfying discussion with the sea. Putting my remarks down for the thin tongue of the sea to interpret. Inaudibly. A therapy. Instructions too complicated for me at the moment but stowed in my black box for later, like feeding a wild deer with potato crisps, as you do in that snapshot where you exclaim back towards me and my camera. So I had no idea I had stepped into the telescopic sights of the paparazzo sniper nested in your brown iris. Perhaps you had no idea either. So far off, half a mile maybe, looking towards me, watching me pin the sea's edge down. No idea how that double image, your eyes' inbuilt double exposure, which was the projection of your two-way heart's diplopic error, the body of the ghost and me, the blurred see-through, came into single focus, sharp-edged, stark as a target, set up like a decoy against that freezing sea from which your dead father had just crawled. I did not feel how, as your lenses tightened, he slid into me. This is about a You imagine the sort of story, a situation, and the woman addressed here uh, was a Jewish father, Russian Jewish father, a Prussian mother, who was born in Berlin in about um, 1929. <clears throat> so, escaped from Berlin to Israel. So, from being a Jew in Germany, she was a German in Israel and from there escaped into the rest of the world. So it's just um, addressed to her. It's called a locket, you know, locket around the neck. Sleeping and waking in the song of songs, you were half blissful. But on occasion, casually as a yawn, you'd open your death and contemplate it. Your death was so utterly within your power. It was as if you had trapped it, maybe by somehow giving it some part of you for its food. Now it was your curio pet, your familiar. But who else would have nursed it in a locket between her breasts? Smiling, you'd hold it up. You'd swing it on its chain to tease life. It lent you uncanny power, a secret, bluish demonic flash when you smiled and gently bit the locket. I have read how a fiery cross can grow and brighten in the dreams of a spinster, but a crooked key turned in your locket. It had sealed your door in Berlin with the brand of the burnt. You knew exactly how your death looked. It was a long, cold oven locked with a swastika. The locket kept splitting open. I would close it, you would smile. Its lips kept coming apart, just as slid. The clasp seemed to be faulty. Who could have guessed what it was trying to say? 
your beauty, a folktale wager, was a quarter century posthumous. While I juggled our futures, it kept up its whisper to my deafened ear, fait accompli. One is another one, <clears throat> dressed to the same. Snow falling. Snowflakes clung and melted in the sparkly black fox fur of your hat. Soft chandeliers, ghostly wreckage of the Moscow opera. Flakes perching and losing their hold on the heather tips. An unending walk down the cobbled hill into the oven of empty fire. Among the falling heavens. A short walk that could never end was never ending. Down, on down, under the thick, loose flocculence of a life burning out in the air. Between char-black buildings, converted to closed cafes and Bronte gift shops. Beyond them, the constellations falling through the Judean thorns into the fleeces of the Pennine sheep, deepening over the faces of your school friends, Beside their snowed under tanks, locked into the steppe, where the mud had frozen again while they drank their coffee, you escaped deeper into the falling flakes. They were clinging to the charcoal, crimped, black, pony-skin coat you wore. Words seemed warm. They melted in our mouths whatever was trying to cling. Leaning snow folded you under its cloak, and ushered you away down the hill back to where you came from. I watched you feeling the snow's touch. Already it was burying your footprints, drawing its white sheet over everything, closing the air behind you. <clears throat> Read one. This is called Opus 131, the Beethoven Quartet. <clears throat> Opus 131 in C-sharp minor opened the great door in the air and through it flooded horror. The door in the hotel room and the curtain at the window and even the plain homely daylight blocking the window were in the wrong dimension to shut it out. The counterpoint pinned back the flaps of the body. Naked, faceless, the heart panted there like a fetus. Where was the lifeline music? What had happened to consolation, prayer, transcendence, to the selective disconnecting of the pain center? Dark insects fought with their instruments, scampering through your open body as if you had already left it. Beethoven had broken down. You strained, listening, maybe for divorce to be resolved in the arithmetic of vibration to pure zero, for the wave particles to pronounce on the unimportance of the menopause. Beethoven was trying to repair the huge constellations of his silence that flickered and glinted in the wind. But the notes, with their sharp faces, were already carrying you off, each with a different bit, into the corners of the universe. read you something a bit earlier. This is a, a turn, an arctic turn. <clears throat> I wrote it as a presentation poem for Norman Nicholson, the poet Norman Nicholson. So it's just about the turn flying along the breakers. <clears throat> looking for fish down in the breakers. The breaker humps its green glass. You see the sunrise through it, the rack dark in it, and over it, the bird of sickles swimming in the wind with oil spasm. That is the turn, a blood-tipped harpoon, hollow ground in the roller dazzle, 
honed in the wind flash, polished by his own expertise, now finished and in use. The wings, remote controlled by the eyes, in his submarine's swift shadow, faint and tilt in their steel. Suddenly a triggered magnet connects him downward, through a thin shatter to a sand eel. He hoists out with a twinkling through some other wave window. His eye is a gimlet. Deep in the churned grain of the roller, his brain is a gimlet. He hangs a blown tatter, a precarious word in the mouth of ocean pronouncements. His meaning has no margin. He shudders to the tips of his tail tines. Momentarily, his lit scrap is a shriek. This is just about a flower, a a foxglove. It was was originally titled Sunstroke and Foxglove. As you bend to touch the gypsy girl who waits for you in the hedge, her loose dress falls open. Midsummer ditch sickness. Flushed, freckled with earth fever, swollen lips parted, her eyes closing, a lolling armful and so young, hot among the insane spiders. You glimpse the reptile underspeckle of her sunburned breasts and your head swims. You close your eyes. Can the foxes talk? Your head throbs. Remember the bird's tolling echo, the dripping fern roots, and the butterfly touches that woke you. Remember your mother's long, dark dugs, her silky body a soft oven for loaves of pollen. Just two pieces from a, a farming diary I kept <clears throat> when I was keeping sheep and bullocks. And the first one is about a lamb that failed to get born, and the second one is about a calf that got born. And the, um, the one about the lamb is self-explanatory, and the one about the rainbow, the the calf, is that it was born under the end of a rainbow as we came into the field. It was just being born. And the rainbow came right down on the cow. The, the cow was standing there, so the calf was born with the cow standing right under the end of a rainbow. <clears throat> anyway, first of all, the calf. A lamb could not get born. Ice wind out of a dish downpour, dish clout sunrise. The mother lay on the mudded slope. Harried, she got up. And the lumpish end lump bobbed at her back end, and the blackish lump bobbed at her back end under her tail. After some hard galloping, some maneuvering, much flapping of the backward lump head of the lamb looking out, I caught her with a rope, laid her, head uphill, and examined the lamb. A blood ball, swollen tight in its black felt, its mouth gap squashed crooked, tongue stuck out, black purple, strangled by its mother. I felt inside, past the noose of mother flesh, into the slippery muscled tunnel, fingering for a hoof, right back to the porthole of the pelvis. But there was no hoof. He had stuck his head out too early, and his feet could not follow. He should have felt his way, tiptoe, his toes tucked up under his nose for a safe landing. So I kneeled, wrestling with her groans. No hand could squeeze past the lamb's neck into her interior to hook a knee. I roped that baby head and hauled till she cried out and tried to get up, and I saw it was useless. I went two miles for the injection and a razor. 
sliced the lamb's throat strings, levered with a knife between the vertebrae, and brought the head off to stare at its mother, its pipe sitting in the mud with all earth for a body, then pushed the next stump right back in. And as I pushed, she pushed. She pushed crying, and I pushed gasping. And the strength of the birth push, and the push of my thumb against that wobbly vertebrae were deadlock, a two-fro futility, till I forced a hand past and got a knee. Then, like pulling myself to the ceiling with one finger hooked in a loop, timing my effort to her birth push groans, I pulled against the corpse that would not come, till it came, and after it the long, sudden, yoke yellow parcel of life, in a smoking slither of oils and soups and syrups, and the bodily born beside the hacked-off head. This was the calf. <clears throat> This morning, blue, vast clarity of March sky, but a blustery violence of air, and a soaked, overnight, new-painted look to the world, the wind coming off the snowed moor in the south, razorish, heavy-bladed and head-cutting, off snow-powdered ridges, flooded ruts shook, hoof-puddles flashed, a daisy mud-plastered and mixed its head from the mud, the black and white cow on the highest crest of the round ridge stood under the end of a rainbow, head down leaking something, full in the painful wind that the pouring haze of the rainbow ignored. She was licking her gawky black calf, collapsed wet fresh from the womb, blinking his eyes in the low morning, dazzling washed sun, black, wet as a collie from a river as she licked him finding his smells, learning his particularity. A flag of bloody tissue hung from her back end, spreading and shiny, pink-fleshed and raw. It flapped and coiled in the unsparing wind. She positioned herself, uneasy as we approached, nervous small footwork on the hoof-plowed, drowned sod of the ruined field. She made uneasy low noises, and her calf, too, with his staring whites, Mood of a full, clear calf note, pure as woodwind, and tried to get up. Tried to get his cantilever front legs in operation. Lifted his shoulders, hoisted to his knees, then hoisted his back end and lurched forward on his knees and crumpling ankles, sliding in the mud and collapsing plastered. She went on licking him. She started eating the banner of thin, raw flesh that spinnakered from her rear. We left her to it, blobbed antiseptic onto the sudden blood dangle of his muddy birth cord, and left her inspecting the new smell. The whole southwest was black as nightfall. Trailing squall smokes hung over the moor, leaning and whitening towards us. Then the world blurred and disappeared in 45-degree hail and a gate-jerking blast. We got to cover, left to God the calf and his mother. I'll read two pieces <clears throat> from the opposite ends of a story. Find the other story. Um, these are two answers to a question, to questions. <clears throat> In this story, my my protagonist, who is just um, a lump of protoplasm, really fairly unformed, with um, no music, um, very little voice. Um, and only the rudiments of experience um, is carrying across a river an enormous woman or an enormous 
creature made of many parts of different women, and a giant ogress who's forced him to carry her across this river. So he steps out into the river, and as he <clears throat> wades into the deepening current over the gravel, her weight begins to increase and increase, until finally he just stands there with braced legs, and her weight drives him into the bed of the river till the river's running past his mouth. And then this ogress asks him a question. And the question relates back to the earlier part of the story, um, where he's been looking for his maker. That's his, his adventure, is to find his maker. And this quest to find his maker has led him again and again and again to some female creature or some female thing or even some female. <clears throat> and he's always um, misunderstood the encounter and somehow mismanaged it and had to start again. And she, this woman that he's now carrying, in fact, is made up of parts of all these things he's met in the past. And so now she asks him a question about relationship between man and woman. And so uh, really a question about love. And <clears throat> the first question uh, expects a negative answer. I'll not read you the, the answer to the first question. This is the <clears throat> answer to the second. The second expects not quite such a negative answer. And the third, not quite such a negative. When he answers the first question, as he's answering it, and trying to get it right, trying to get his, his answer right, and he has to sing it, it has to be a song, but he can't sing, so he just carries on. And uh, he was always getting it wrong, so he has to start, keep starting again. So his answer is made up of fresh starts. So it's a song that's no song, an answer that never gets beyond the first remark, and an answer that's trying to get something correct, which he can only get wrong. And the question is a dilemma question. It doesn't have an answer anyway. <clears throat> and the first question was, who paid most? Did she pay most or did he pay most? Who bore the heaviest cost? Now, there's no answer. This one, <clears throat> the second uh, question is, um, what sort of a creature was this relationship? Was it animal or bird? So he begins, and he's got the river flowing past his mouth, and with every, every little bit of rightness that he can get into his answers, I should say, he chips off a little bit of her weight. So there's a sort of feedback to his answers. Whenever he touches a bit of rightness, she gets a bit lighter. So he just keeps on and keeps on and keeps on, little bits here and there of rightness in among all the wrongness. And every time he gets a bit of rightness, she gets lighter. And so he has to keep on. So his answers are very long until he gets her back to a weight that he can manage. Then he can step out and go on across the river, and then again her weight increases, happens again, another question, seven times, anyway. So here's the second question. Was it an animal, or was it a bird? What sort of creature was it? Was it an animal? Was it a bird? She stroked it. He spoke to it softly. She made her voice its happy forest. He brought it out with sugarlump smiles. Soon it was licking their kisses. She gave it the strings of her voice, which it swallowed. He gave it the blood of his face, it grew eager. She gave it the licorice of her mouth, it began to thrive. He opened the aniseed of his future, and it bit and gulped, grew vicious, snatched the focus of his eyes. She gave it the steadiness of her hand. He gave it the strength of his spine, it ate everything. It began to cry, what could they give it? They gave it their calendars, it bolted their diaries. They gave it their sleep, it gobbled their dreams. Even while they slept, it ate their body skin and the muscle beneath. They gave it vows, its teeth clashed its starvation through every word they uttered. It found snakes under the floor, it ate them. It found a spider horror in their palms and ate it. They gave it double smiles and blank silence. It chewed holes in their carpets. They gave it logic, it ate the color of their hair. They gave it every argument that would come. They gave it shouting and yelling, they meant it. It ate the faces of their children. They gave it their photograph albums. They gave it their records. It ate the color of the sun. They gave it a thousand letters. They gave it money. It ate their future complete. It waited for them, staring and starving. They gave it screams. It had gone too far. It ate into their brains. It ate the roof. It ate lonely stone. It ate wind. Crying famine, it went furiously off. They wept. They called it back. It could have everything. It stripped out their nerves, chewed, chewed, flavorless. 
It bit at their numb bodies, they did not resist. It bit into their blank brains, they hardly knew. It moved, bellowing through a ruin of starlight and crockery. It drew slowly off, they could not move. It went far away, they could not speak. By then he's got it back to her weight, <clears throat> got her back to her weight, I should say. And then he's able to climb out of the gravel and continue. And so there are more questions and more answers. <clears throat> I'll read you the last, the answer to the last question. And as I say, they began negative and they gradually turned positive. And so the last question, as he's coming up the far side of, out of the middle of the river toward the far bank, the seventh question comes. She brings him to a standstill again with her increasing weight. And the seventh question is, who gave most? Which of them gave most? And so he begins to answer. She gives him his eyes. She found them among some rubble, among some beetles. He gives her her skin. He just seemed to pull it down out of the air and laid over her. She weeps with fearfulness and astonishment. She has found his hands for him and fitted them freshly at the wrists. They are amazed at themselves. They go feeling all over her. He has assembled her spine. He cleaned each piece carefully and sets them in perfect order. A superhuman puzzle, but he is inspired. She leans back, twisting this way and that, using it and laughing, incredulous. Now she has brought his feet. She is connecting them so that his whole body lights up. And he has fashioned her new hips with all fittings complete and with newly wound coils, all shiningly oiled. He is polishing every part, he himself can hardly believe it. They keep taking each other to the sun. They find they can easily to test each new thing at each new step. And now she smooths over him the plates of his skull so that the joints are invisible. And now he connects her throat, her breasts, and the pit of her stomach with a single wire. She gives him his teeth, tying their roots to the center pin of his body. He sets the little circlets on her fingertips. She stitches his body here and there with steely purple silk. He oils the delicate cogs of her mouth. She inlays with deep-cut scrolls the nape of his neck. He sinks into place the inside of her thighs. So, gasping with joy, with cries of wonderment, like two gods of mud sprawling in the dirt, but with infinite care, they bring each other to perfection. And then her weight has come back to very light. And she leaps off his shoulders and she's become a most beautiful young woman and she scampers up the shallows and into the forest. Ahead of him. I'll read three more. <coughs> Two more. From early days. <clears throat> this is um, another one about the <clears throat> Opus One Three One. The this is just um, a poem about living on the northern edge of uh, Regent's Park Zoo and uh, where you can hear, or you could in, back in the 60s, you could hear all the lions that set up the roaring and you'd hear lions at night. And in those days, the zoo used to specialize in all kinds of dogs, wild dogs, dingoes, coyotes, and a big pack of wolves, about 16 and 17 wolves. <clears throat> so sometimes you'd hear these wolves and um, they'd begin with just yippings and yappings of little dogs, foxes or whatever and then one or two bigger ones would come in and barks and yells and dingoes would begin to howl and then at a certain point these wolves, this pack of wolves would begin <clears throat> and it was a, a very eerie 
um, beautiful sound, which you've probably heard. And um, they pitch their voices against each other. When they're howling, they sit in a ring sometimes. And they're obviously all listening to each other. And they seem to be turning their voices against each other as though they're, as though they're singing in harmony, or woofy harmony anyway. As though they are making music and they keep it up and up and up and up. And the whole thing, just they all just travel along in this strange fugue. <clears throat> but it's also, of course, very horrible. Very beautiful and very horrible. And um, anyway, it was just about hearing this at night in the middle of London. The howling of wolves is without world. What are they dragging up and out on their long leashes of sound that dissolve in the mid-air silence? Then crying of a baby in this forest of starving silences brings the wolves running. Tuning of a viola in this forest, delicate as an owl's ear, brings the wolves running, brings the steel traps clashing and slavering, the steel furred to keep it from cracking in the cold, the eyes that never learn how it has come about, that they must live like this, that they must live, innocence crept into minerals. The wind sweeps through and the hunched wolf shivers. It howls, you cannot say, whether out of agony or joy. The earth is under its tongue, a dead weight of darkness, trying to see through its eyes. The wolf is living for the earth. But the wolf is small. It comprehends little. It goes to and fro, trailing its haunches and whimpering horribly. It must feed its fur. The night snows stars and the earth creaks. just read a little short piece <clears throat> again just describing a moment <clears throat> um, you imagine the back door of a house looking out onto the yard that um, my old father had totted across about 20 yards of cobbles rising away slightly to a long wall and behind the wall a, a hill, an old prehistoric hill, a fort mound of some kind and on this hill three huge trees elm trees in those days and uh, so the full moon which as you know rises at dusk as the sun goes down the full moon comes up in a night or two <clears throat> so it comes up um, just at dusk it rises for much of the year it comes over the wall at the top of the yard and climbs up through those trees and on this occasion my daughter who was then two um, just coming three, and <clears throat> she had a number of words. I forget exactly how old she was, but she had, she had a, a number of words without really being fluent in any, any great way. And mostly they were bottles and apples and so on. But um, she had others. And on this occasion, I was in the yard, and it was dusk, and the full moon had just come over the wall. This huge goldeny moon, it was in September and um, she, she was doing something inside the house and suddenly she came bolting out of the house into the yard just dashed out of the house and then saw this thing at the end of the yard and stopped and there was there were several moments when she just stared at this moon and I was there filling a bucket and um, she, it was obvious that she was just astounded by this sight at the end of the yard and didn't know what to make of it and then suddenly she realized she had the word for it <clears throat> and she was able to so it's just a description of this evening a cool small evening shrunk to a dog bark and the clank of a bucket and you listening, a spider's web, tense for the dew's touch. A pale lifted, still and brimming, mirror to tempt the first star to a tremor. Cows are going home in the lane there, looping the hedges with their warm wreaths of breath. A dark river of blood, many boulders, balancing unspilled milk. Moon, you cry suddenly, moon, 
Moon! The moon has stepped back, like an artist gazing amazed at a work that points at him, amazed. <clears throat> okay.